We continue in the book of Judges. We've been going through the series this summer. And uh, one of the things, one of the verses that over probably the last three weeks, every Sunday when I'm here, I think of Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. And that says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The word of God is living and active. And that comes to mind because I know the book of Judges as well as any book of the Bible. Going back 25, 30 years, I've read it and reread it and studied it and studied it and reread it. And yet, every week, whether it be Matt or Anthony, I'm seeing something in the text that I don't remember ever reading before. The Word of God is living and active. I'm hearing things in terms of points of application that I've never considered before. I'm hearing culture and history of the time that I never read before. The Word of God is living and active. And so whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, there is value in it. And I don't know what it's done for any of you, the rest of you, it's been, it's been so good for me to be reminded of that, to be humbled by that fact that no matter how much I think I know, I haven't begun to plumb the depths of Scripture. And regardless of how long I live, this side of eternity, I'm never gonna have it all figured out. And so it doesn't get old and we keep going back to learn more and more and more. Last week, Anthony had the joy and the pleasure of Judges chapter 9 and this character named Abimelech, one of the 70 sons of Gideon. And one of the things that I don't remember ever seeing before was 9 chapter 4. Chapter 9 verse 4. I got it right the second time. Chapter 9, verse 4. And Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. Well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, it stands in stark contrast to something we're going to see in chapter 11. And so just hang on to that. It'll make sense in a moment. But Abimelech was one of the 70 sons of Gideon. Gideon had 70 sons. Does it tell us how many daughters he had? This guy was not a good and godly example to follow. And yet he was used by God to deliver Israel, to provide leadership on other levels. Under Abimelech, you don't see anything in chapter 9 indicating any kind of repentance or godly 
or spiritual influence is just chaos. And he oppressed his fellow Israelites until his death. And if you remember how he died, attacking a tower of his fellow countrymen and a lady dropped a big rock on his head. And before he could breathe his last, he begged his armor bearer, just stick me through so it won't be said that a woman killed me. Well, it's kind of semantics at that point, isn't it? (laughs) We all remember how it happened. But from there, we get into chapter 10, and it's interesting because in the first five verses, after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. He lived in Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shemir. So what did he do? He judged Israel for 23 years. And probably with some overlap as to his responsibilities, And his calling, after him rose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel for 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities. It sounds like Sesame Street. Um, They were called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried at Canaan. All right. And so after roughly a 40-year period of relative peace and stability... We see the cycle begin to repeat itself. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And you wonder, how can this be over and over and over again? But we're not much different. When life is easy or simple, when we aren't faced with challenges or hurts or things that are seemingly outside of our control, when there are things that we think we can handle, we tend to just try to handle them ourselves. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites and crushed, and they had crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan, east of the Jordan. You know, it would be Syria and Jordan um, on today's world map, but they possessed both sides of the Jordan at that time. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan going west to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that all Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. I just want to stop here. I think maybe years ago I said something about this, but we tend to think of Baal as one entity, as one false god that was worshipped, and there is that, but there's also the Baals. You see this throughout the Old Testament. They served the Baals. And what that was, in the land, as Israel came in, every piece of property had its own Baal, its own idol, its own shrine, 
its own altar to a false god of that piece of land. And if you wanted that piece of land to be productive, you offered sacrifices and you made concessions and you worshiped the god of that property. So he would send rain, so he would make the ground produce good crops. And if you owned a lot of property, that meant you had a lot of bales to go and appease for all your different properties. When you go back and you think of Jacob, and when he leaves Laban and his wife Rachel does what? She steals her father's idols. See, these idols weren't just for the pieces of land, but they also served as title to the property. So if you possess the idol, that was like having the, the title to that land. And so you see, I possess the God of this land, so I possess the land. And so Laban was fairly distraught because now all his certificates of title, so to speak, had just left with his daughter. And now Jacob could technically claim all that Laban owned. And so when we are reading here in Judges, they serve the Baals, they serve the individual spirits or gods of these properties. And when they came in, they were commanded, wipe all this stuff out, but they didn't. And they left them to remain. In Isaiah chapter 57, Isaiah writes, boy, you, you go under every spreading tree and every high hill to worship these idols. And that's because on, under every spreading tree and every high hill, there was an altar, a shrine to these false gods. And you say, well, I'm glad we don't do that anymore, but you ask Tony Haug what it looks like in Japan. And everywhere you go, you see altars or shrines to false gods. As people continue to be enslaved to their own ideas, the own expectations passed on to them, the idols that they've been told are going to help them. And so Israel cried out to the Lord saying, verse 10, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet... You have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. It seems like a reasonable response. If you're going to chase those things, let those things save you. And what's interesting is the very gods that they're pursuing they're the gods of the people God, that Yahweh, creator God, has already dispossessed before them. And so then God allows the people whose gods Israel is worshiping, he allows those very people to come back in and oppress them cruelly, brutally, until they come to the understanding that this isn't working. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. 
So they put away the foreign gods from among them. They served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together. They encamped at Mizpah, and the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, who is the man who will begin the fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilgal. Gilead, wrong G. And so one of the things we see that, that lest we think that idol worship is not just a big deal, it's just kind of a distraction, what we see over and over in Judges, we see over and over in Scripture, what we see to this day around the world, every time someone forsakes God Almighty, the Creator God, Yahweh, it leads, it always leads into greater sexual sin and oppression of the weak every time. All the time. It's not just that, well, I'm going to worship my own thing. It's everything that follows, that creates hurt, that creates more anguish, that creates more pain. Not just for the people doing that, but for those that they oppress and they use and they hurt as they pursue lies. Ravi Zacharias, I would hear him say it all the time. And you go back and you, you listen to things, to his, his talks and his speeches and you read his books. And one of the things that he would say so often is, when one divorces themselves from truth, chaos is the inevitable result. It's illustrated in Romans chapter one. If you divorce yourself from truth, if you're gonna follow a lie and pursue a lie, God will eventually say, follow that to its logical end and see how it works for you. Because it won't work. Chaos is the inevitable result when one divorces themselves from truth. And Israel is experiencing chaos once again. And chapter 10 is setting the stage. This is what's happening. This, you, somebody ought to make a movie about this, really, because it's already laid out. It, <laughs> you can sell the producer right here. All right, it starts out, this is what's going on. And now what are we going to do? We, we are tired of this. We've decided we're going to turn away from the garbage and the junk and the sin that has led us up to this point. It's time to take our stand. We got, you know, I think there's a song, something about, you know, jokers to the left of me, and um, now I can't think of, it just came to my head. I shouldn't have been distracted here so easily. But uh, it doesn't matter. Jokers to the left, jokers to the right, and here I'm stuck in the middle. And that's kind of where Israel is here in Ephraim. It's modern, well, not modern-day Samaria. It became Samaria where kind of the center of Israel, and you got the Philistines creating a highway of destruction going east. You've got the Amorites, the Ammonites creating a highway of destruction going west. It's cut the country in half. They are making everyone miserable, especially those closest in this, this giant highway of death, so to speak. And so 
we see that sin, it starts out easy, it seems out, starts out enjoyable, maybe even somewhat fulfilling, and it always ends in destruction, it always ends in death, it always ends in pain, it always ends in emptiness. And that's where Israel finds themselves when they finally cry out to God and say, whatever you think is best, we will do, just deliver us. And the scene is set, and who's going to deliver them? And so we get to chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. So you've got a man named Gilead who lives in Gilead, who has a son by a prostitute. And this is a fairly, we think prostitute today, and it's probably a little bit, perhaps, we don't know. Because in these first three verses, there's a lot left open. (laughs) Perhaps three of the most understated verses in all of scripture. So there's a lot left, but if you're an unattached woman, if you're a widow or an orphan, you had very few options in the world at that time. And so for whatever reason, this lady had sold herself to Gilead and how Gilead knew that Jephthah was his son versus somebody else's, we don't know. But at least he had the integrity to take this boy in and raise him up in his home. He was a mighty warrior because he grew up having to fight. (laughs) This is as dysfunctional a home and a family as anyone has ever had. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And so as He's having sons by his wife. He's raising the son that he assumes is his own from a prostitute. And so every day, Mrs. Gilead gets up and looks at the evidence of her husband's unfaithfulness. And as much as she may have tried otherwise, there was a bitterness and an anger that was there. And we know it because it rubbed off on her sons. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jep out and said to him, you will not have an inheritance in our father's house. So as you can imagine, this kid grew up fighting every day, every day, every day, every day, every day with his brothers. Every day, every day, every day. You're not really one of us. You're not really part of us. You don't belong here. We don't want you here. Why don't you go anywhere else but here? And everything Jep had, he had to fight for. And I'm sure he, well, we know that he learned to give what he took. But when his father Gilead finally died and it came time to divvy up the inheritance. That's when the brothers took their stand and said, Dad's not here to protect you or to keep you from us. 
So you can leave because you're getting nothing. For you're the son of another woman. That's probably as polite a thing. (laughs) That's not what they said. You fill in the, we don't know what they said. You fill in the foul, obscene, whatever thing that they had to say to Jeff. There's no doubt in my mind it was not this polite. Then Jep fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And where is the land of Tob? If you go back and look at your Bible maps, you won't find it. Um, some really smart historians, archaeologists, they think somewhere in the border, eastern border country, east of the Jordan, kind of between that Syria, Israel, no man's land there, that's where Jep went. And he began to establish a reputation as a warrior, as a fighting man. And what's more, now go back to 9 verse 4, and Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows to follow him. Worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. What's the difference? Jep wasn't paying them. What these worthless fellows saw in Jep was a kindred spirit. What they saw in this man was a leader. What they saw in this guy was a a level of charisma that they wanted to be a part of. He was a leader of men. He didn't have to pay anybody to follow. These folks, these men, these worthless fellows, and again, very polite, these rednecks, these roughnecks, these wild men gathered around Jeb. These men that had been thrown out of their families. Men, maybe because of choices they made, were no, welcome to come, no longer welcome to come home. Maybe it was decisions like Jeb. He couldn't help his lineage. And he had nothing to do with it. But Maybe some of these guys were like him and they were just tossed out because you don't fit. You're not one of us. And these reckless, these worthless fellows collected around Jep and went out with him. And we don't know, are these just a bunch of outlaws? Or living in the border country like they did, they just kind of created their own space and you leave us alone. Because you mess with us, it's going to get ugly fast. We've all known those folks who have no sense of um, a proportion when it comes, you know, you play a joke on somebody and okay, so you, you, you splash water on them and so then they pick you up and they throw you in the lake. It's like, no, you just got a little bit wet. Now I just got tossed in with my phone and my wallet and everything. Well, you got me wet. You know, so were these guys just, you know, you poke me and we are going to kill you. You don't mess with us. We've been messed with our whole lives. No one's messing with us now. And their reputation began to grow. And so, here's the thing. For 18 years, Israel has been oppressed. And when it comes to the point of needing a leader, here's Jeb, 25, 30, 35 years old. God has been preparing him for this moment. All the junk, 
all the garbage, all the hurt, all the misery has been preparing him for this moment when he would step up and lead. And so you have, first three verses, we conclude the flashback, and now we're right back to where chapter 10 left off in verse four. And after the time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. When the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. Now, who are the elders of Gilead? Some of his brothers, maybe all of them. Now, can you imagine how hard this would have been for these jokers who run him off how many years earlier? How this must have stuck in their throat, knowing the things that they called him, knowing the abuse they heaped on him, and knowing the reputation he now had. How desperate were these men? How hard would it have been to show up in today's parlance, hat in hand and teeth in the carpet, asking him to come back and to be our leader? I don't know. I'm sure there's harder things to do than that, but not many. And so you have an awkward and uncomfortable reunion at best. And they said to Jep, come be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jep said to the elders, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why now have you come to me when you are in distress? Sounds reminiscent of what God told the people. You've got these other gods, you go talk to them. And I'm sure Jep was more than a little bit arrogant. I'm sure he was gloating more than a little bit. And the elders of Gilead said to Jep, this is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight the Ammonites. We don't have another answer. You know it, you see it. We aren't even gonna try to sugarcoat it. We're only here because we can't fix this, and you can. So if you, and go, if you go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants, you will be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Verse 9, Jep said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jep, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jep went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them and Jep spoke all of these words before the Lord at Mizpah. They finalized it, they formalized it at Mizpah. And from there in verse 12 through 28, Jep jumps right in. I'm gonna be leading this, we're gonna be fixing this. So all right, you guys, and he's probably been having skirmishes and battles and fights with these same jokers, these same people who are oppressing Israel. And so he contacts the king and he gives him a history lesson. And he asks him, well first he asks, why are you doing this? What's your beef with Israel? 
And the king says, well, you took our land, and so I'm here to take it back. And Jep goes back, and, and he, he understands the history of Israel. And when you see, well, you find it in Deuteronomy 2, in Numbers 21 and 22, you see it in Joshua 13, how Israel had kind of gone out of their way at the command of the Lord to leave the Ammonites alone, and we're just gonna go around, nobody wants them around, and if you're gonna attack us, well, then it's over for you, but, and so he gives the king a history lesson. And he says, 300 years ago, this is what happened, and you weren't making any noise except to harass us, so why now does this become your fight? Why now do you take this up? Why now? It's not yours, it never has been. This is just an excuse to, to, to rape and steal and pillage and brutalize another people. That's all this is about. So you can knock it off, or we're gonna make you stop. That's, we can have a peaceable conclusion to this. And at the end of, well, in verse 28, but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he had sent to him. And so the stage is set for the battle, and we're gonna see how that ends next week. But I want to take a couple minutes here and just review, what are we looking at in Judges week after week after week? Every generation must choose. If there is anybody that had an excuse to pitch it, Jephthah did. He'd gone off, he had made his own community, nobody was bothering them, nobody wanted to bother them, And yet when he was presented with the opportunity to come back and serve, maybe he didn't exactly see it in this light, but he chose to side with his father's people. And God calls unexpected leaders. Who's more unexpected than Jephthah? The son of a prostitute. Why would this guy, everybody's written him off. And, if, and there's a lot of things about our culture, our society today that just are mind-numbing at best. But I think one of the things that we have done, we've come a long ways, and whatever the motivation behind it, I think we're less likely to hold <laughs> the sin of mom and dad or grandma and grandpa against the kid. Not that it doesn't happen, but in this time, Jep was written off in Israel. Nobody wanted him around because of who his mother was. He had no say in that. He had no call in that. But because that was what defined him, that's what everybody saw when they saw him. And yet God calls him and changes the narrative. God can use anyone, and it goes to the back to the same point. God's not looking at the one who came from good folks and grandparents and great-grandparents. You know, okay, my pool of eligible servants are pretty small because you go back enough generations to be good enough to serve me. 
God calls the unexpected out of their circumstance and out of their hurt and calls on them to respond to his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness, to respond in obedience to his call. And I know I mentioned way back, week one in Judges, that there's a lot who want to use these use the Old Testament as an excuse to pitch God altogether because he's malicious and vindictive and we can't reconcile that with what we see in the New Testament. And yet I would argue, especially here in chapter 10 and 11 and 12, we see the God of grace and mercy and forgiveness and redemption all over the life of Jephthah. Everyone else had written him off and thrown him out. And he was not a kind, gentle man. And yet God calls him and uses him in his grace and his mercy and redeems him back to his family. God's character has never changed. We see his grace and mercy in the Old Testament every bit as much as we do in the New. The people of Israel lived under his grace and mercy every bit as much as we live under it today. The people of the Old Testament relied on his grace and his mercy every bit as much as we rely on it today for our salvation. His character is unchanging. We see hope for ourselves in God's choosing of Jephthah. God doesn't need perfect people with the ideal background. He's looking for obedient people, humble individuals who will bend their knee in repentance, who will bow their head in obedience to his call on their life. And what we see in Jephthah, we see the responsibility to make the necessary changes to follow God in obedience. In a lot of ways, it's easier for Jephthah to stay where he's at, out in the border country. I've got my band of worthless fellows that nobody messes with. We've made a life. Why do I want to come back and be reminded of all the garbage that I grew up with? And yet, in obedience, he comes back to lead and deliver God's people. Obedience is our response to God's grace. Obedience is our response to the offer of of redemption. It's evidence of a redeemed life. And next week, as we finish up in chapter 11 and chapter 12, again, we see that Jephthah is not a perfect man by any means. But which of us are? Who among us are perfect? Who among us have the creds necessary that God would pick us 
As we look around this, as I look around this room, we come from different backgrounds, different kinds of families, different kinds of upbringings, and yet God has saved us by his mercy and grace and brought us together and made us a new people, a new creation, to be trophies of his grace to be evidence of his work to a lost and dying world that he wants to see come to repentance. It's a story, it's a picture of grace and God's mercy and his redemption. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.